I realized that there was a, an image being projected that Detroit was sort of beyond uh, recovery, that it was coming apart at the seams. Uh, there was just no coherence. And our work in Detroit had suggested that that wasn't really the case. It was more complex than that. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Rip Rapson, president and CEO of the Kresge Foundation. Rip joins us today to discuss his work in Detroit. Rip, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Now, the Kresge Foundation, of course, uh, our listeners will recall, is the now nearly century-old uh, foundation located in southeastern Michigan, focused on uh, philanthropic work, especially around social, educational, health concerns uh, over the course of the 20th century. Rip, in your role, president and CEO, over the past 14 years, you've recommitted in those areas, but also with a particular focus in Detroit, been increasingly concerned with the civic life and health of that city and its built environment. Can you share with us the work that you and your colleagues at Kresge have been engaged in in the past decade or more focused on the city of Detroit? When I arrived at Kresge in 2006, the foundation had a storied but narrowed tradition of giving to capital campaigns. We, for the better part of 75 years, had invested in health centers and arts complexes and aquaria, anything else that was built out of bricks or wood. And we began in 2006 to shift slightly away from that. And at very early stages, it was just simply introduced the concept of having five or six bodies of work that could stretch across the nation in human services or health or environment or education or arts and culture with a deeper touchdown, but of a similar kind in Detroit. But then in 2008 and 2009, the rug was really pulled out from underneath the city. And not only did we suffer the economic recession the same way so many cities did, but we were also hobbled severely by the automobile bankruptcies and by a, a set of political scandals that caused our Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick and about 50 of his closest allies to end up in the federal penitentiary, and then the housing foreclosure crisis on top of all of that. So it, it became a huge challenge for a foundation whose history had emerged from Detroit and whose, whose location was firmly settled in Detroit to just carry on as normal. We really had to think about whether they, we needed to work in different relationship to the city. And uh, for the next number of years, did exactly that. And we can talk more about that. But it cemented Detroit as sort of the pillar of our work. And so although Kresge to this day continues to work across the country in these different domains of health and environment and others, about 20 to 25% of its funding goes into Detroit, and I would say an even higher amount of its sort of mind share goes into Detroit. And that certainly has ebbed and flowed with bankruptcies and economic declines and resurgences and COVIDs. We find ourselves a, a place-based foundation whose work in Detroit helps inform the work in other parts of the country, whereas I think before it was just the reverse, the, the sort of the broad approach of Capital Challenge Grant making sort of informed how, what we did in Detroit. And now I think it's more the, that Detroit informs what we do everywhere else. 
So it shouldn't be surprising then that the, this new strategic approach to philanthropic giving grew also out of your own background and experience. As you were recruited into this role in 2006 by the folks at Kresge, was it clear that that would be the mandate going forward or was that something that took a, a while upon arrival? That's such an interesting question. I was uh, firmly rooted in Minneapolis with family and uh, a long history of having lived and worked there. So when I got a call from a friend of mine who was doing the Kresge search, she said, I know you're not interested in moving, but would you be willing to come talk to them? They've been working in a certain pattern for a very long time, and I think it would be useful for them to hear the kind of work that you've done at McKnight or uh, your impressions about whether there might be alternatives to working in such a narrow range as Kresge does. And so I, I said, fine, of course, I'd be delighted to do that. And so I, I uh, sat down with them and almost immediately it became clear that they were interested in two things, whether I was part of it or not. Uh, the first was trying to diversify a little bit their kind of monoculture of just giving into building campaigns at a certain stage in their evolution. And they were interested in working much more deeply in Detroit. We had a couple of Detroit trustees, even though it was a national board, we had a couple of Detroit trustees who just felt that the needs of that community were so severe, we needed to step up in a different way. And that took me by surprise because I hadn't assumed that either of those things would be on the table. And so the, the conversation in that first meeting turned into a far more engaged, almost working session than I might have anticipated. And something that to me didn't seem even a possibility of for me to, to sort of pick up and uproot and move to another place and to another institution all of a sudden became very attractive because it offered the opportunity to work with a willing board to figure out what that new strategy was, would be. And I think out of the blocks, that was not at all clear. If I might, Charles, I think there were sort of four sort of simple concepts I put on the table that ended up helping shape our work from there on out. First was that privately endowed philanthropy like Kresge has this incredible privilege of being able to sort of take a very long view, take an integrative view, try to understand how different systems interact and interplay. And, uh, and that's something that is generally afforded public sector leader or a private sector entity. Second was that philanthropy really did have the prerogative and uh, almost the responsibility of taking risks. You know, the, this was discretionary money that we could put in play where the market had not been willing to go or where public sector policy had not been willing to go. And so we could actually um, try to peel back layers of risk in a way that others couldn't. Third, um, that unlike the Kresge Capital Challenge Grant, which was pretty one-dimensional, philanthropy, privately endowed philanthropy, had the uh, a suite of tools at its disposal that it could use. It wasn't just um, extending grants to nonprofit organizations to do direct service work. You could commission research, you could engage in communication strategy, you could advocate for policy change, you could make loans, you could use your endowment to make equity investments. It was a really, it was a wide spectrum of possibilities that I thought that they might want to at least look at. And fourth, and probably most formatively for the work that was to come, private philanthropy, in my view, had an obligation to work on behalf of underrepresented people and causes and ideas. Uh, there was no particular uh, need for a, a foundation with two or $3 billion of assets to invest in things that were working well. It was an opportunity to try to understand whether there might be opportunities to invest in 
low-income people or disinvested places or causes that were pushed to the margins. And so those four principles ended up becoming the bedrock for our build-out of a very different approach to philanthropy. I don't know that it was terribly different from other uh, legacy philanthropies like Ford or Carnegie or Rockefeller or others, but for Kresge, it was very different. Again, it turned a corner into Detroit and helped us work in Detroit in a very different way. As you say, you arrive in 2006, Rip, and of course, very, very quickly, the city has a, a, series, of, uh, a series of challenges. You've mentioned the 0809, you know, uh, housing crisis. Of course, the automobile industry, bankruptcies, bailouts, and the like. And then, of course, the particular you know, political scandal in the mayor's office. And so that must have been a turbulent few years at the beginning. Was the job in those years more challenging than you might have been? I mean, to what extent did it map on to the, the auspicious opening conversations you had? It was probably more disruptive constructively than I might have, have known. It, it certainly required our national programs to take account of cities that were struggling, Detroit aside for the moment. But in Detroit, the impact was profound. There were two or three events, if, if I might, that turned us in a very different direction. The first was my board was becoming anxious. They were looking at a value proposition in Detroit that was increasingly questionable with no political leadership, no private sector leadership, civil society kind of hanging on by a thread that could hardly keep the lights on. Uh, and I had many of our trustees express concern about whether there was really an end game that we could participate in in any kind of meaningful way. I remember one trustee asking why we couldn't work somewhere easy like Newark. And I thought, oh, gosh, we've come to that. That that's, says something. But about the same time, I also got a call from Luis Urbinas, who was the, f- the new president of the Ford Foundation. And Ford, again, had this sort of storied history coming out of Detroit and had had a deep commitment to the work in Detroit over the years. And Luis, with all good will, uh, said, uh, you know, I'm from McKenzie. I'm new. I don't see why we're working in Detroit. I think we may not need to continue to do that. And so I hopped on an airplane when that was still possible. And sat with him for many hours trying to help him understand the landscape of Detroit and where we thought we might make progress. And third, and perhaps most formatively, I get a call from a guy named Derek Douglas, who was on President Obama's Domestic Policy Council. And he had just come out of one of the early cabinet meetings with the president and reported to me that the president had said he would not permit Detroit to become the Katrina on his watch and had tasked his cabinet to figure out something that they could do to be helpful. So Derek said to me, so we want to come and announce something. And I said, that is just terrific. What are you going to come to announce? And he said, well, I have no idea. You need to tell me what I need to announce. (laughs) I thought, well, that's a funny flipping of the script. But anyway, between the board, uh, the Ford Foundation, and the President of the United States, I realized that there was an image and a reality being projected outside of Detroit, that Detroit was sort of beyond uh, recovery, that it was too confused, too coming apart at the seams, uh, there was just no coherence. And our work in Detroit had suggested that that wasn't really the case, that that was certainly understandable if you read it on the front page of the Times, but it was, it was more complex than that. So I went back and I developed a sort of a schematic in which I just outlined nine bodies of work that I believe could actually hold together almost as scaffolding until the public and the private sectors regained their footing. 
that philanthropy could invest in, not just Kresge, but the, the collective philanthropy of, of Detroit. And it ranged from land use to transportation, to arts and culture, to neighborhood housing and small business development policy. It, it was a spectrum of things. And that diagram, which we termed Reimagining Detroit 2020, we were looking out a decade, ended up being a remarkably useful document in that in each of those nine modules of activity, you could identify people who were willing to step up and lead, people who were willing to invest capital, and you could begin to see the connections among those different bodies of work. And that became in some ways our roadmap for the next number of years. And I think it was it was sort of what held us together and it was enabled us to convey to the outside world that there was more to work with in Detroit than one might think. And it was very helpful for our board to sort of begin to see the outlines of what would have to gel and develop some propulsion in order to be successful. You mentioned the culmination of those years of crisis in the 2013 bankruptcy of the city of Detroit. And of course, both your role, Kresge's role, but the the, the range of civil society engaged in what's come to be known as the, the grand bargain. So to tell us about that, both how that came together and what your role, what Kresge's role was in that a resolution of a, what seemed to be at the time a essentially intractable uh, set of challenges. Charles, during, during the period of about 2009 to 2013, when we were trying to operationalize this reimagining Detroit framework, we would pull together regularly people working in each of these verticals and talk a little bit about the sort of the interactions and how each could be sort of mutually informing. In 2011, 2012, one of our participants said, you know, what we really are doing is preparing for the city's bankruptcy. And I said, pardon me, what do you mean? He said, none of these systems can be floated indefinitely until the city can balance its books and get out from under its long-term debt obligations. And I said, really? You mean, how, how could we possibly work in that environment? And he said, that's the only environment in which you can work. Because unless you hand this work off, it's unsustainable. Philanthropy cannot continue to undergird civic society. It, it has to do this in a greater partnership, and you can't do that if your partners are not competent and properly resourced. Well, that was prescient because within a year, Governor Snyder had essentially told Mayor Bing and his administration that they had to balance the books, otherwise the state would have no choice but to put them under receivership, essentially. Uh, the mayor tried, acted in good faith. He simply could not do it. The issues were too structural, too complex. And so at that point, Governor Snyder appointed an emergency manager, Kevin Orr, and the city declared formal bankruptcy. And for the first number of months, the focus was largely on getting the city to balance its books. How do you make sure that revenues and costs get evened out? But then, of course, it became clearer and clearer that the long-term overhang were the debt obligations, both in health and pensions. And those were something that were so mind-numbingly complex. We had about $20 billion of, of obligation with no way to resolve them that Orr and others began talking about forward being either dramatic reductions in the public pensions or the selling of the art held by the Detroit Institute of Arts. And the Detroit Institute of Arts is a sort of a, an unusual creature in that in Detroit, it is essentially city-owned. Uh, it's very complex, but essentially it was owned by the city and considered a city asset. 
And so when you looked at the assets that the city had, it was either the pension funds or the art of the Institute or began floating the very painful but necessary idea that you had to think about selling those. Otherwise, the creditors would be at your door and shut you down in ways that you couldn't imagine. So the bankruptcy judge had the great wisdom of appointing a mediator who was actually the chief judge of the federal district court, <laughs> a guy named Gerald Rosen. Jerry was Jerry because he was my uh, doubles partner of some 30 years before when I was in, working in Washington. But Judge Rosen invited me to a dinner one night and he said, I don't know how we get out from under this problem without a sort of a dramatic move, which will either be the selling of the art, the reduction of the pensions, or a third option that I want to try out on you. And I said, oh, yeah. He said, well, it's what I'm calling the art trust. He said, if we can raise enough money from philanthropy to essentially buy the art back from the city, we'll get the fair value of the art, we'll buy that art from the city, then the proceeds of that ore can use to hold the pensions constant I think we can then negotiate with the creditors. And I said, well, that's a clever idea. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, how much do you think we would need? And he said, oh, I don't know, a billion dollars, I think. <laughs> and I just about fell out of my chair. We were on the second course and I just about fell out, uh, fell out over, the, over the salmon. And I said, well, that's a pretty big number, Jerry. And he said, yeah, but you know, it just, it's, it's a once in a lifetime thing and won't you think about it? So anyway. Make a very long story short, that began a series of conversations about whether we couldn't capitalize that kind of fund. And uh, my input back to the mediator was, if you call it an art trust, you'll never raise that kind of money. You can't ask philanthropy to be bailing out an art collection that may or may not come at the cost of pensions or may or may not come at the cost of creditors. I said, I think you need to frame it so that it is a only way to resolve the bankruptcy expeditiously and consensually. And that if what we're investing in is the rapid resolution of the bankruptcy so that we don't have to remain in litigation for a decade fighting about whether the art is held in public trust or whether pensions are inviolable, that I think you can sell to philanthropy. And so that's exactly what he did. He called it the grand bargain. The Ford Foundation and Kresge realized as the two large players in the system. We had to each put in north of $100 million a piece. That got our colleagues into the game. Judge Rosen then walked that up to Governor Snyder and said, I'm holding $350 million of commitments. The state of Michigan needs to do the same because ultimately you're responsible for the pensions. So we ultimately got the fund up to north of $800 million. And that turned out to be enough for all purposes, buy the art and use the proceeds of that purchase to make sure that the pensioners were not harmed. That gave the judge leverage to uh, negotiate with the creditors on 10 or 20 cents on the dollar. And the bankruptcy was in fact closed just over a year after it was begun. It's the most rapid resolution of a bankruptcy in the history of American politics. And just for our listeners to give some context, that nine-figure, $100 million ask of Kresge represents the better part of your annual gifts nationally, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was um, for other larger foundations like the Ford Foundation or even the Kellogg Foundation. They were able to spread out their payments from money that they would otherwise have invested in Detroit. Kresge believed that that wasn't an option, that we needed to take a one-time bite out of our endowment 
so that we didn't diminish the other work that we were doing in Detroit, which we felt needed to be ongoing. So this was above and beyond our normal contributions and was yeah, probably 60% of 70% of our annual giving at the time. In our conversations with folks in Detroit who have seen over the past decade or so Detroit's reversal of fortune, if you will, and its renewed focus on the built environment, to a person, uh, they've pointed us to your leadership and the role of Kresge in Detroit occupying an outsized role uh, compared to other private philanthropies in other cities. And I want to ask you about that. You've described, I think, in great detail your mission and the role of a foundation like Kresge in supporting Detroit, recommitting to the city as as it were. To what extent did the the crisis years that you navigated and the resolution of the grand bargain enable what's been described as a kind of renaissance in Detroit in the past several years? It's a very kind characterization. Thank you. Maybe I could um, actually link it back for one final just twist to the bankruptcy, because when Judge Rhodes, the bankruptcy judge, was holding public hearings about, about the bankruptcy and how to resolve it, He divided his deliberations into three parts. One was the remediation of the long-term debt, and there the mediator was working with all of the creditors to figure that out, and they figured it out. Second was how to balance the books of the city, as we talked about, and Kevin Oren, the city bankruptcy manager, essentially. Judge Rhodes was very clear that there was a third pillar to the resolution of the bankruptcy, which was to ensure that the quality of life could be sustained over time. And essentially, what the judge did not want to have happen was to approve the remediation of the debt and the balancing of the books only to go into bankruptcy two or three years. Hence, because there was insufficient tax base or people were leaving the community or any number of other things sort of unraveled the fabric. And so he asked three people, uh, actually, Kevin Orr, the emergency manager, asked three witnesses to make the case that the way that we had worked in Detroit would endure. He asked Roger Penske, who was a leading corporate citizen in Detroit, who had been uh, deeply invested in issues of public safety and um, in other matters. Dan Gilbert, the owner of Quicken Loans, who had moved his operations downtown and had helped rebuild the downtown uh, central business district and me. My testimony focused on the roles that Kresge had played, not so much the particular interventions of investing in a fund for small business development or investing in a land use plan, but how we had worked because uh, both the emergency manager and the judge were convinced that over time the issues would change, but the role of philanthropy had taken a form that was really important to the long-term stability of the place. I mean, that breadth of, uh, of remit, that in a way self-authorized uh, commitment, strikes me, at least from the outside, as well beyond the traditional definition of philanthropy. I mean, but presumably, you know, it's something that we see increasingly the case. Would you describe those activities? You've described the, the role of uh, Kresge and, and other private philanthropic organizations being, you know, the first in, right, to kind of mitigate risk. Is that primarily a signaling mechanism to private markets, or is it genuinely drawing down risk? And to what extent, you know, what kinds of risk does it expose you and your organization to? That's a terrifically important question. Uh, Thank you for it. I think that in many ways, it has to be sort of the precipitating event, not the sustaining event. And I think we've seen that in Detroit, and, I, and we've seen it in other communities in which we work, in New Orleans, and Memphis, and Fresno, and other places. 
that you, you need proof points. You need to be able to demonstrate that something can work. And then when something can work that seems sort of outside the comfort zone or the awareness zone of a capital market, it's funny how they will come to it. And for a while, you need to kind of continue to, to grease the machinery. But after a while, you don't. You know, when Dan Gilbert first moved downtown, and Gilbert now owns like 90 properties downtown, it is crazy. And for a while, he was sort of serving in this same zone of sort of taking the first risk, doing rehab, drawing people downtown, and it became a flywheel. And I remember Dan saying to me a couple of years ago, he said, you know, geez, you know, it used to be that I could just waltz in and buy a, buy a building at, at a fire sale, and now I'm getting outbid. And I said, well, you know, you have yourself to thank for that, don't you? And he said, yeah, I guess that was always the purpose. But in many ways, that's what philanthropy is doing as well. It's trying to create these demonstrations that the market can, in fact, live in these environments and thrive in these environments. So we haven't made an investment along Woodward Corridor for a number of years, and yet there have been billions and billions of dollars invested because I, I would argue because of some of our early risk-taking. I don't know if that's the answer you were hoping to get, but I think it is the start of something, not the, the long-term hold of something. Well, I can tell you it's corroborated by our conversations with your colleagues in Detroit, both private sector, public sector, the design professionals. In that regard, I'm, I'm interested, Rip, in uh, the role of the built environment and manifesting change in the built environment. It strikes me that Detroit in the past several years with, with your leadership and the work of many others, it's a great demonstration uh, in the context of the American city of the role of, of change. Uh, so often the things we're describing, whether it be policy or governance on the one hand or economics or capital markets on the other, so many of these things tend toward abstraction. And what I've seen and what I've heard from the colleagues we've been discussing this with in Detroit is the role of manifesting built change, you know, building a new district, uh, reinvesting in the Woodward Corridor and seeing physical transformation uh, and the role of even modest interventions. I mean, you mentioned the waterfront, of course, there's an enormous transformation across the waterfront, both east and west. And at the same time, compared to the 139 square miles that is Detroit, it is still just a beginning. But in that context, I wonder, has it always been clear to you or is it a, is it a reasonable reading that disproportionately those investments to which you were first mover uh, manifest in changes in the built environment? Or, or am I overreading that? I think it's a really complicated question. And, and if I could maybe take a half step back, Charles, it was clear to us that we needed early demonstrations of tangible progress. That could be a neighborhood park. It could be a huge sweeping riverfront. It could be a cluster of housing renovations. It, it, it was really important that communities who had long lived and worked in Detroit saw that change was possible because so much of the challenge of Detroit over the last 14 or 15 years is the, is the sense that things were too hard, too complicated. You could only do one thing at a time. And I think what we tried to do is to say, you can both do one thing at a time, but you can do many things at a time. And th those things have the possibility of aggregating. But in order to do that, I guess I would argue that the half step back is the power of planning. It's easy, I think, for our political friends and even our private sector friends to poo-poo the power of planning. But in 2010, when we were looking at a situation in which Detroit had 100 
thousand vacant and abandoned and blighted properties when there was just no logical entry point and there was certainly no financial entry point the mayor called me and said this was mayor bang at the time and called me and he said rip we just have to have some sense of how to take all of this inventory and make sure that it's on the positive side of the ledger because right now it's all on the debit side everything i'm looking at is tear down contamination lead homes blighted rat infested challenges to community safety he said we've just got to get out of that narrative and i and every time i talk about it people think i want to close down their neighborhood and ship them off across town so he said is there some way that you could help and i to make a very long story short i got on a plane and and had dinner with tony griffin and tony had just completed her stint with mayor booker in newark to try to figure out a plan for the city there and had done the plan and helped do the plan in Anacostia with Mayor Williams and she agreed to take it on and to really long story short she sort of combined very high level sophisticated transportation planning water quality planning housing planning with deep deep community engagement and over the course of 4 or 5 years we were able to create a sort of a plan that was both deeply sophisticated from any planning angle in as well as enjoyed great authenticity from the community itself so here we have this plan in the middle of the bankruptcy and i get a call from a guy named Matt Cullen who works with Dan Gilbert and he said would you please come down and talk to Gilbert and his cabinet he just thinks this plan stuff is ridiculous and it's kind of hurting our ability to uh, get the new city administration to think seriously about it so i went down and Gilbert's conference room and and Dan Gilbert you know sort of was pacing back and forth and he said rip what you know this is irrelevant to me why why are you asking the private sector to help think about building this plan out because you know i'm focused downtown and it, it just all seems too academic and i you know so we began a conversation about well where are your employees going to live how are they going to get to where you want them to get to what are the public amenities that you want and it's all part of this holding of a larger version and a year or two later when we created a blight task force right during the bankruptcy dan had done a complete flip and he agreed to sort of head that blight task force and understand how you could begin moving against the blight of of the city's neighborhood using the detroit future city plan it became a road map for what do you do first what do you do 10th what do you do 13th what's the pathway between them and so even sort of the most hard scrabble private sector investor began to understand the power of the plan and the same thing worked with mayor duggan when he came into power after the bankruptcy i think he was at first very skeptical but his head of economic development was not and his planning director maurice cox was not and they began again trying to line up their investments in physical places according in some way according to the so the chapters of the plan and so so i don't mean to overstate the plan but i think thinking about just plopping down physical demonstration points doesn't work very well because then they do just sort of fizzle unto themselves but if you can see them as a play into a larger set of interrelated systems into a larger sequence of priorities then all of a sudden those one-offs become more than one-offs they become mutually reinforcing they create sort of an accelerant effect 
and they become amplified in their power to convince people that change is possible. You've mentioned the, the role of community and among the understandings we've come to is that the fault line that so often appears between well-intentioned planning efforts and um, entrenched community interests or the kinds of engagements that happen often through consultation or participation exercises seems to have been perceived as successful. I guess one thing we could say is that the planning efforts also seem to have been quite deep and thorough across many, many districts of the city, and that the citizenry also, uh, civil society, the NGOs, the community development groups, and local block groups, et cetera, have participated. In that regard, can you characterize for us what makes that case study so different and successful in Detroit's recent history, when the history of the American city is really littered, frankly, with so many failed, you know, failed examples of attempting to connect with or engage with community? Another terrifically important question. When Tony first came on, uh, she worked with one of the really superb organizers on the East Coast, a guy named Bill Potopchuk. And Bill and I had gone back many years. And so Tony and Bill had designed with Bill's firm a process that was a pretty traditional community process, big town halls, high level presentations, lots of grass, lots of this, lots of that. And that was what led to those disastrous first meetings. And it wasn't Bill's fault. It wasn't Tony's fault. It was just, there was so much pent up energy and people wanted to know why their sewer line hadn't been connected. Not, you know, how are we going to think about green blue infrastructure? And so it, it became for a short while, an exercise in futility. There was just no way that all of Tony's experts from Edinburgh could have a conversation that meant anything when people were grabbing the microphone and talking about water shutoffs. I mean, it was just too hard. So at that point, we realized that we had to go to people with longstanding, deep credibility in community. And fortunately for us, there is a guy named Dan Patera at the University of Detroit Mercy since moved on the Design Center for Detroit. And Dan had been working in community for 20 years. Uh, He is a very sophisticated planner, had been mostly doing small project, had worked with UD Mercy up in Northwest Detroit to help them do some of their campus planning. But he designed something that was straight out of the Obama campaign book. He had a chart of, I've forgotten what it was, the 32 different constituencies that you have to engage in order to work in community small businesses, churches, homeowners, block club leaders, politicians, you know, the whole works. And he created a sort of a master planning process that was just brilliant. I mean, it was online, it was in people's basements, it was at community centers, and it became this enormously iterative process where no community meeting was held without some element of Tony's technical analysis being involved. And then that would then sort of get pushed up against the resident who said, well, you know, you may want to use this for green blue infrastructure, but that's the source of a dump for the last 30 years and you'll never get your water quality. You know, it was that kind of really interesting community wisdom meets academic wisdom process. And it took a really long time. It took us almost four years to do this. And so why was this different? I think one, it took so very long. Two, it was so deeply rooted. And three, frankly, because we were willing to underwrite it. 
this was really expensive. <laughs> and so I think at the end of the day, Kresge must have put in, uh, I don't know, four or five million dollars. The Ford Foundation put in a lot of money. But it endures. I mean, today that, that same process is what is seen by the community as having been legitimate. When we unveiled the Detroit Future City Plan in 2013, I stood on a stage with about 30 folks from the community, as well as Tony and the mayor. And the 30 folks from the community represented what they called process leaders. Dan had suggested different leaders in different parts of the city to sort of shepherd the process and very complicated how they did it. But essentially, they owned that piece geographically and substantively. And so one after another, after another, they came up to the podium and said, this is our plan. Thank you very much, Tony. Thank you very much, Kresge Foundation. Thank you very much, Mayor Bing. But this is our plan. And it actually sits outside of city government. It doesn't sit in the planning department. And Maurice and I, and I, I love Maurice. I think he's one of the most gifted planners I've ever known. Maurice and I uh, crossed swords on that very early on because I think the mayor and Maurice said, well, you've done your job. Now give us the plan and we'll move on. And I said, no, sorry. No, this is, this is owned by the community. It's held by the community. It will be continually refreshed by community. And I think it's important to have some objective distance. The planning department can be a full participant in conversations about the implications of the plan. But ultimately, there's a little bit of accountability that is retained if you sort of keep it outside of the, of the city hall structure. I'm struck by the relative symmetry of in the conversation about the grand bargain, now in the conversation about dealing with uh, the complexity of community engagement, that the imbrication of various issues, the complexity of these structural conditions have to be dealt with at a granular level. I mean, that, that strikes me as both honest, it kind of rings true emotionally, but it also suggests, you know, very challenging long-term commitments. I mean, presumably you and and your colleagues at Kresge, as you invested in the early version of this, didn't know it would be four years and wouldn't be several million dollars. And so it speaks to your patience and, and forbearance. I want to ask you, Rip, about maybe your comparables or peers elsewhere. Obviously, you know, Kresge has a, a national footprint, uh, has committed in many other cities. You know, uh, you mentioned New Orleans, Memphis, uh, Fresno, among, among others, in addition to Detroit. One of the things that's been come clear in our conversation in Detroit is that the philanthropic community or the, the foundation occupies a different role in a city like Detroit than it may do in the other cities that we're looking at, you know, Los Angeles or, or New York, for that matter. It's been suggested to us in our conversations that especially in the industrial rust belt, uh, particularly, you know, places like Pittsburgh or Cleveland or St. Louis come to mind that the foundation occupies a kind of role that's quite different, quite distinct along the lines that you've described. And I wonder if, if that description rings true for you and if, if you can identify other comparable cities or comparable foundations that, that you look to as peers or that you think might be interesting in terms of lessons about the future of the American city. I think there are a number of sort of undertold stories of foundations who have taken on some of the roles I described earlier in a way that is contextual and, and appropriate, and maybe at a different scale than our sort of all-in commitment. I think of the Heinz Foundation in Pittsburgh, a very powerful force in helping sort of reset the table of conversation around issues of racial inclusion, for example. I think of the, the Lilly Foundation in Indianapolis, almost never talked about, but 
if you had gone to Indianapolis 30 years ago and now visited tomorrow, you wouldn't believe the change. And much of that, I think, is because Lily has chosen to, in a very quiet, sort of unobtrusive way, invest in the physical infrastructure in the sort of the physical plan structure of the city. And uh, it's, a, it's a remarkable transformation. But maybe I could bend the question just a little bit, because I think as I think about what has happened in Detroit, it, it's tempting to say that, well, all right, Kresge and others, the philanthropy in Detroit sort of constructed this scaffolding that held long enough to get out of the bankruptcy for the public sector to get back into the mix and again, Dan Gilbert's and the private sector get back in the mix. So you should just sort of return to your default mode and underwrite arts organizations and human service organizations and get out of this business of more sort of strategic shadow planning entity, whatever it is you are. And I think that misses the point of your question. I, I think what we are seeing is a recalibration of the civics of major American cities. New York is really complicated. I don't, I can't pretend to think about how to crack that nut. Even LA is incredibly complicated. But in the older industrial cities of Cleveland and Pittsburgh and Detroit and Memphis and New Orleans, I think what we're seeing is the emergence of a much more distributive model of problem solving that the mayor's office has the election certificate, is in charge, full stop. But on the other hand, given the sweep of these complexities, they've just simply got to be able to work with the community development finance institutions to move money to ground. They've got to be able to work with the banks to move money into foreclosure or mortgage programs. They've got to be able to work with philanthropy to do sort of longer term build outs of public space, whatever it is. And that is not the kind of command and control model that we have attritionally associated with the large American cities of the Midwest in particular. And, you know, strong mayor, Richard Daly, Coleman Young kind of model. And it's not to say that the mayor's offices aren't tremendously important and aren't the front line of, of public policy. They are. But I think we're seeing the emergence of different configurations of support and build out. And in that way, I think Detroit is not as atypical as people would think. I mean, again, I think if you land in Cleveland, you will find that a combination of uh, the Cleveland Clinic and Case Western and the Cleveland Foundation and the Gunn Foundation and nonprofit economic development associations are almost as important in setting the trajectory of that city as the mayor's office is. Now, and that may change. I think these things ebb and flow over time and the relative weights and roles of these organizations and entities change over time. But I think this sort of cross-sectoral approach to stabilizing communities, to building communities, and to sustaining health in communities is, has changed. I don't think we're going to go back to that. It's not that we're going to go back to the sort of the pre-2008 era. I think in Detroit and in other places, this new model is here to stay. And does this new model preclude the rebuilding of public sector capacity in directors of planning offices or other? I mean, I mean, you've described this as a kind of new, a new civics, a new, a new ecology of civic engagement with respect to a range of different cities. I think this is a very helpful schema to have. 
But it's hard not to read this in the context of Detroit and other cities as, in part, the what had been the remit of the public sector, uh, primarily during the 20th century at least, and the recession uh, from the ability, frankly, the capacity for most municipalities to engage in these kinds of activities. It's a terrifically important insight and question. The last thing philanthropy would want to do or should do is in any way suggest that these public processes are not uh, legitimate or, or are dispensable. And I think the better way of thinking about it is that the, the solution set is more mediated. Think about Detroit's Northwest. It's a part of Detroit up in the Northwest sector that has very stable middle-class housing bordering on really unstable housing. It's anchored by two universities. And one of the things that we suggested many years ago was to create a green space between the University of Detroit Mercy on the east and Mary Grove College on the west. For years and years, you could not move from one campus to another because the nuns wouldn't permit a through street. They were afraid of the guys at UD Mercy. And so there's no connection between them other than a major commercial quarter that's been badly disinvested. So we suggested that we actually create a greenway between the two. And it, it came out of a, of a program that the Knight Foundation and Kresge and the New York Foundation uh, had called uh, Reimagining the Civic Commons, Reimagining the Civic Commons. And we did bodies of work in other cities. But in Detroit, it was to create this greenway that would take a pretty blighted block run a bikeway through it, but preserve the housing that was stable, renovate the housing. So use all of our housing tools to make sure that those numbers of blocks were, were stabilized, but create this new amenity. Well, Maurice Cox loved it, but he didn't have the resources to do this. <laughs> you know? And so we ended up trying to suggest to Maurice that the basic model kind of looked like what we had done in Memphis and what we had done in uh, Philadelphia. And, and then he went to work. He did what good planning departments do. I mean, he set his young people on it. They did a, a preservation plan. They did a community engagement plan. And we were able to sort of weave together kind of what we thought might be helpful and then step aside because that is exactly what a good planning department ought to do. And he did it. You know, now you have a park in one corner, Ella Fitzgerald Park, and you have this greenway and you have stable housing. And the young students from uh, Mary Grove can actually get find their way to UD Mercy. Rip, I want to ask you about your work at Kresge going forward. I know that among other initiatives, you've recently launched a new racial justice grant-making initiative through Kresge. Tell us about that and what other prospects do you see going forward? In the early part of November, we announced a $30 million racial justice package that was intended to contribute in some small way to the energies of racial justice that the nation is is feeling, it was a package that took a while to put together. We had a lot of tension in our organization with our young staff who immediately after George Floyd in late May said, well, we've got to make an announcement right away. We've got to put a big dollar sign on the door and say, this is our commitment. And I said, well, uh, McKinsey Bezos will do that and other folks will do that. But we have, I think, both the opportunity and the obligation to think very carefully about how place structures this work. 
If we're going to do a racial justice package, it needs to be relevant to the residents of Detroit and to Memphis and to New Orleans and to Fresno and the other places where we have deep commitments. And I said, so in order to do that, I think we have to be very intentional about what kind of suite of investments we make. We, we need to couple national organizations with local organizations, national organizations who have been doing legal advocacy for a long time or who have been doing public policy change for a long time or technical leadership training for a long time with folks on the ground who are just emerging. A lot of these organizations are young. They, they have no nonprofit experience. They, they have high aspirations and high motivations, but, but they need help. And so we need to figure out what that looks like. On the ground, we need to understand that community organizing can occur around housing, around transit, around childcare, around open space, around environmental degradation. And so we need to not just sort of move money just to the folks who are in the streets making the most noise, although we need to do that too. We need to understand what aspects of, of society are being implicated in this movement. And then we need to work across communities. There's no reason in the world why Memphis and Detroit shouldn't be having this conversation together with New Orleans, with Fresno. And, you know, in Fresno, it's, it, the movement is largely led by brown people. In New Orleans, it's led not just by black people, but by Asian and Pacific Islands. It's a very interesting mix. And to be able to, to create cohorts, in, even in just this limited way, became important to us. So what we ended up with in this early November announcement was uh, a package that tried to do those things simultaneously. And I, and I like to think, Charles, without being too grandiose about it, is that it's sort of a microcosm of what the racial justice movement needs to be. Lots of people doing work, lots of people who have been in the trenches for a very long time. But if we were to take a page out of the conservative book of 30, 40 years ago, you need to have leadership development, you need to have research and uh, storytelling capacity. You need to be able to develop communications channels. You need to figure out how to engage in political operations. And unlike the conservative movement that is very comfortable with command and control with the certain actors just sort of directing all of that, that's not going to happen on the progressive side of the equation. People are too stubborn and, and too independent, but they will talk in place. They will connect in place. And so that becomes our form of ensuring connection. So I think the, the package is just a first step. It builds on top of a portfolio that is already, in my view, deeply rooted in issues of racial justice and equity. Uh, you know, we work in American cities on behalf of people with low incomes. That is, by definition, an equity and justice agenda. But this is uh, new money to new organizations on top of what we've already been doing. Rick Rapson, thanks so very much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you. What a pleasure it's been. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit fotac.gsd.harvard.edu.